Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. We see the syphilitic shrinking obelisk. The white man's wilting dick. Of CD game show trolls, the smiling lie of the televised hive. The witches are watching with their thousand eyes. Witches are watching with their thousand eyes. We smell rotten teeth. Hi, this is Mark Arnold, and welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 59. This episode is sponsored by the fine folks at Lee's Comics. We're working feverishly to get headquartered the book on the monkeys' solo careers out in February or March of 2020 in time for Beetlefest. My co-author, Michael A. Ventrella, will be attending and selling copies of it and our previous monkeys' book there. I'm doing the final edits and image placement for the TTV scrapbook. It looks really good, and I will be turning it in soon. I just got the assignment to do an article for Back Issue Magazine on Underdog. The Warren Kramer book is due back in February, and I'm still working on my own Light Up Your Life travel agency, and of course, the Mad book. Our guest today is an artist and writer who has worked on a number of rock and roll biography comic books, plus books such as Cartoon Flophouse featuring his own characters. Here he is, Michael Auschanker. Okay, on the phone today I have Michael Auschanker. How are you today? Hello. Aloha, everyone. <laughs> and as, as per usual on the Fun Ideas podcast, I usually start off with... Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in, in your case, comic books, writing, whatever you want to talk about. Um, well, I mean, um, let's see. Where do I begin? That's a long story. <laughs> I, um, you know, I guess if I were to begin with my first published work, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I thought, you know, I grew up um, really into a lot of uh, animation um, as well as comics. I mean, uh, a lot of traditional comics like Marvel and DC, but also my mom is French, so she would bring editions of um, Bon Destiné, you know, like Tintin and Asterix. Mm-hmm. And um, so I grew up on that in terms of comics, and as well comic strips like the, you know, Peanuts and The Far Side and whatever was, was cool at the time. And then on the animation side, I, you know, when I was growing up, there were a lot of reruns on television so um we had a two-hour block in southern california of max fleischer popeyes and and the same show had uh jay ward cartoons mm-hmm. uh non bullwinkle like um super chicken georgia jungle tom slick it was tom hatton's show which was the um popeye and friends oh yeah on kpla mm-hmm. yeah and so that exposed me to a lot of uh, fleischer um of course warner brothers uh you know heavy circulation of uh, looney tune reruns and um uh woody woodpecker all the walter land stuff and i actually um 
you know, Tex Avery is definitely a big hero because mm-hmm. uh, I do humor comics. So he was a huge influence in addition to the Fleischer uh, Popeyes. And um, and the thing about Tex Avery, um, I growing up, uh, even at a young age, I realized that even though he was known for the Warner Brothers stuff, um, a lot of his best work was actually done for other studios, like um, the Droopy cartoons at MGM. Right. And um, and my favorite, which was actually the Walter Lance stuff, which were really oddball, uh, like Crazy Mixed Up Pop, and <laughs> the the one called Shh, you know, which was about the the uh, the guy who goes, you know, he's on the brink of a nervous breakdown, and you probably know that one. Right. Um, Don't they sing like Rock Rockabye Baby or something like that, and put him to sleep over and over again? Yep. Yep. Yeah, okay. Yep. Okay. Willie, right? Uh, Tilly Willie. And, and Ma and Pa, which was not, uh, Walter, I mean, was not um, Tick Savory, but I love those Ma and Pa cartoons as well, the Walter Lance ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sugarfoot, you know, all these weird ones. And, you know, all of that really um, went into feeding my imagination and wanting to become a, a cartoonist in some way, mm. um, whether animated or, or print. And I did... Um, my first published work was actually a children's book called Get That Goat oh. that came out when I was 19 and I actually had to I won a contest with a, um, a publisher out of um, Kansas City called Landmark Editions mm-hmm. and they sold um, hardcover children's books through the school I think Scholastic or some kind of system where they'd get it into schools and um, uh, David uh, Pilkey is that his name the guy who did Captain Underpants oh yeah, yeah. Uh, he, he started at the same time at the same company with his children's book, his first one. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I went for, you know, that was something I juggled. I was attending Cornell back east, and I was juggling my my Ivy League schoolwork with creating this uh, children's book. And so, um, you know, and, um, and that was very heavily influenced by all the stuff that I was growing up on. And comics, of course, were big, and I... At Cornell, um, we did a we had a collective that did a, a quarterly magazine called Strip, and that was like um, you know essentially comics. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the people who came out of that are New Yorker cartoonists today and um, an independent cartoonist today, and I can list them later. But in any case, we were, we were and actually one one woman who participated, she went on to be a a writer and producer on. Um, Desperate Housewives and Breaking Bad, which was kind of funny. Oh, um, that's cool. Yeah, uh, <laughs> Patty Lynn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but anyway, um, so, you know, um, then after college, um, I got into comics officially, professionally, and my earliest work was um, was for Caliber Press. I did a thing that turned out to be a one-shot. It was supposed to be a series, but it didn't sell well enough. It was a one-man uh comics uh, humor anthology called uh, Bound and Gagged mm. and it was on Iconographics which was Caliber Press's answer to um, to Fantagraphics and so um, that came out and uh, that sent me to my first ever um, Comic Con San Diego Comic Con mm-hmm. in 1992 and I met um, Jack Kirby Jack and Ross Kirby for, for the first and only time mm-hmm yeah, so that, and that was, you know, that was right out of college, uh, so, uh, excuse me here, and, um, um, and at the same time, I landed work, um, 
contributing uh, a comic strip that I created called Chipmunks and Squirrels yep. to a Seattle newspaper called The Stranger. And the art director there was James Sturm, mm -hmm. who went on to do, uh, you probably know his work. Uh, he did a lot of graphic novel work. Mm -hmm. um, and then I began contributing to Heavy Metal Magazine at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, there was a thing called Strip Tease, not to be confused with Strip, the thing at, at Cornell. Mm -hmm. And Strip Tease was edited by a guy named Mar Mark Martin, and he was a humor cartoonist, and Striptease was basically the black and white oasis within all the airbrushed uh, vixens from Venus and heavy metal. There was like <laughs> black and white alternative comics, and Michael Cooperman was taking part of that, Sam Henderson, mm -hmm. Mac White, um, who else? Um, oh my, the guys who did Trailer Trash, who I can't remember their names. Um, it was a who -who, who's who of the alternative scene, and for like three years, I contributed uh, various comic strips to that in heavy metal, and Kevin Eastman owned it at the time, so I used to joke that I was getting paid in tur turtle money, oh. <laughs> Ninja Turtle money, yeah, so um, so that, that all happened kind of almost simultaneously after college. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now I know you did. And, uh, oh, go ahead. Yes. Go ahead. Um, oh, and, and and just to tie a bow on what I said earlier, you know, all my humor stuff really, uh, you know, the kind of energy and and pacing and everything that I tried to do really came from, um, you know, not so much comics as much as um, animation, like all the Walter Lance, Tex Avery stuff that I talked about, Warner Looney. Warner Brothers. Mm -hmm. Now, when you were attending Cornell, were you taking any classes that were related to art or writing or anything, or is it a completely different subject? Um, well, it's a good question. I, I was going to raise this issue. So, when I was in high school, uh, the way that I would um, rebel <laughs> against, you know, doing really dry stuff like European history and math and whatever was to doodle caricatures in my in my, you know, in my notes, and um, actually that was earlier, that was like jun junior high. High school, I was already enrolled in a visual arts program at the high school there, and so I was doing fine arts, and when I got to Cornell, I was a painting major, mm. um, but then when painting became my homework, it, it started to feel like a chore, so the way I would rebel against painting in college was to do uh, essentially children's books and comics. And so I feel like I've, I was always rebelling against whatever my core curriculum was. And <laughs> when when fine arts became my core curriculum, um, in, by the time I was in college, I was it wasn't that I had mastered it and I was bored with it. It was more like I I just didn't uh, I wasn't happy doing it, you know. So um, I realized, I guess, in college, somewhere midway through college, that um, what I wanted to do was combine the writing and the art, you know, and so that's how I kind of got more and more into comic books. Mm. Now, the the stuff I know you for best, I know you for other things, obviously, but uh, you, you mentioned Chipmunks and Squirrels, and then uh, other things like uh, those Unstoppable Rogues and Cartoon Flophouse. How did those uh, series come about? Well, um, you know, I while I was doing the heavy metal stuff, um, I was um, preparing, just doing a lot of comics. I was kind of on a tear in my early twenties and creating stuff, and a lot of a lot of it, including Unstoppable Rogues and Elgato Crime Angler. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I was really being uh, coming from the, um, the entertainment I was watching most more more like in the case of Elgato Crime Angler, <laughs> which was a, a, a goof on a you know, it's basically 
a goof on superhero comics with a Mexican wrestler um, protagonist. Uh, he was like the world's dumbest wrestler and a mama's boy. And um, anyway, and a banana phobe. Uh, bananas threatened his masculinity. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that that actually came from Republic Serials. I was in college binging on a lot of Republic Serials, like the... the um, um, the Purple Phantom Strikes Again kind of stuff, or Captain Marvel, The Adventures of Captain Marvel, which were actually very brutal. I don't know if you've ever seen those, but I they're very the Captain violent. Marvel one, and, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're nothing like the Captain Marvel uh, Shazam comics, you know. Um, the Batman and the Se the Shadow was a good one with the Black Tiger, mm -hmm. uh, you know. And um, those, you know, and at the same time on my breaks home in L.A., um, I lived off Melrose Avenue, which was very trendy, and they had a, a store called Wax. And Wacko had all kinds of novelty stuff. And uh, among the novelties they had were black and white um, uh, postcards of Mexican wrestlers like Hurricane Ramirez <laughs> and El Santo. And that was really my first exposure to Mexican wrestlers. They were, you know, they were essentially stills from the the movies, but I wasn't familiar with the movies at that point, having not grown up in the Latino community. And so that I thought, you know, that would be a good uh, character, you know, for my my goof on the Republic serials and that's how my Elgato character kind of came together mm -hmm. and um, the other stuff like Unstoppable Rogues were really just taken from um, a lot of cartoon animated cartoons but just kind of um, made a little edgier and, and more raw you know and, and also as well from um, I think the cartoonist's name was um, i trying to remember he did a thing called Amy and Jordan I don't remember the, the cartoonist's name and it was just a very raw, like, simply drawn, like, primitive, purposely prim primitively drawn thing about these two characters. And that kind of influenced me doing the Unstoppable Rogues. I wanted to do these, like, two happy-go-lucky characters that were drawn kind of very crudely, <laughs> um, happy-go-lucky, brazenly. Go, you know, sailing through these horrible situations, but never losing their kind of like their, you know, their bright-eyed, bushy-tailed view of the world, you know, and that's kind of where that came from. <laughs> so yeah, you know, soaking up a lot of um, a lot of different uh, different sources, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, the cartoon flop has yeah, the green blat. <laughs> The bellhop. I, I was always curious about him because uh, are you familiar with Richie Rich and Billy Bellhops? That's like a one shot. Um, uh, actually, I never. I, I know Richie Rich, of course, but what, what was the bellhop? What was the bellhop character there, called? There, there's a one shot they did like in the late '70s called Richie Rich. It meets Billy Bellhops, and it was probably going to be an ongoing series until somebody realized. Do kids even know what a bellhop is? So, I, if you're not familiar with it, okay, I was just kind of curious if it was, like, an inspiration of sorts, but I guess not, so... <laughs> no, I'll, I'll tell you exactly where uh, my inspiration came for um, Greenblatt to get great. It was actually... So, my mom is French, as I mentioned earlier, and uh, my uncle, her, her youngest brother, had a studio in Paris that he wasn't using. He was already married, and had uh, you know a villa somewhere and he had this um apartment in paris and i thought you know why don't um i go there right after i graduate from cornell and live in paris for six months mm. and because he let me use the um all i had to do was pay for the utilities he let me use the studio 
So I wound up in Paris um, at the end of my graduation year, and um, I was living there and everything. And um, in, at the newsstands, so they had a um, comics anthology called Psychopath, P-S-I-K-O-P-A-T, <laughs> like psychopath. And it was essentially... Um, a uh, version of Fluide Glacial, which is like a famous um, anthology in France, you know, of comics that were sold at newsstands. And this was kind of like a, a copy in a sense. And um, anyway, in Psychopath, there was a strip, which is still running, a Belgian strip called Cowboy Hank, H-E-N-K. Have you heard of it? I have heard of it, yeah. I've never really read it's it, but I know about it, yeah. Yeah, so it was done by these two guys, Kamagurka and Hair Seal, mm -hmm. whose real name is Peter Van Hair Seal, and he's a friend of mine now on Facebook, which is cool. Mm -hmm. And um, this strip blew my mind. It was um, actually the first time I had seen it was in Raw. You know the um, Art Spiegelman Raw books? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So if you remember, there was uh, one or two editions of Raw that had a uh, kind of a, a, a big, burly, blonde guy with a pompadour, a blonde pompadour. Oh, yeah, okay. So then I probably have seen this, so, okay. Yeah, huh. so they were translated, and they were actually... They were... I remember they registered with me, but they weren't, like, the best thing I had ever read. I mean, they were just, like, abstract, avant-garde gag cartoons right. in Raw. And... But then when I got to Cornell, and I... You know, and so I had seen Cowboy Hank a few years earlier but um, when I got to Paris um, and I saw those Sika Pats I was buying those Sika Pats off the newsstands they had a version of it called Cowboy Jean like they changed the name to J-E-A-E J-E-A-N <laughs> like Jean mm -hmm. and there was the same strip and um, they were really like dirty and hilarious <laughs> and there was one strip in particular that just blew my mind. You know, it was just the funniest gag strip I had read in a lot, you know, in years. And um, essentially, it was an absurdist strip, and I wanted to do something like it. So, the Green Lot, the Great. Um, if you look at those early strips, they're kind of a little bit trying to be in the style like they i threw in a lot of stuff that i saw in europe like sign like road signs and uh all kinds of designs of buildings and and building signage that was very french and european okay and um i've kind of made it tintinish uh you know in terms of like the character designs and stuff like that the supporting characters and my my goal with that was to also do an absurdist strip like as crazy and freewheeling and nonsensical as Cowboy Hank. Okay. And so that's where Greenblatt the Great was. I mean, Greenblatt the Great was essentially me, you know, not copying Cowboy Hank, but finding a vessel in which to just have a character that was just, you know, balls out absurdist. Yeah. And um, and so that's really where it came from. It came from Cowboy Hank. And um, and years later, I'm happy to say I'm I'm Facebook friends with the artist um, Peter. <laughs> Uh, Van Herseel, who you know, they they came out, you know, that strip came out of the Flanders part, the Dutch part of um, of Belgium, not the French part. And when I, you know, last year in 2018 or September 2018, I was in Paris for a week, and I took a day and went for an evening to Brussels because you could take the train from Paris; it's very close. And I met I met Peter in person, and he actually treated me to a half and half, which is like a type of alcohol at this 
his favorite tavern in Brussels and we we hung out and he I was with my girlfriend at the time and he I brought my I lugged my big huge volume uh, printed in Spain of Cowboy Hank comics in Spanish that I can't read and I lugged it all the way to Europe so he could sign it and he actually drew portraits of myself and my, my, my girlfriend at the time in my book and he was really cool and I met his fiance they're now married mm-hmm. and uh, I had the best time meeting him and he, he was really salt of the earth and he invites me every time I'm in Europe to come and stay at his place so um, it turned out to have a quite a um, very many years later it paid off quite well I got to know him as a friend wow I'm going to have to investigate those strips again because once you said raw that clicked in my head I go I've seen this stuff so <laughs> it's like but you know I, I you know I have to you know I'll look it up after the show here just uh, yeah they're, they're like one pagers in raw and, yeah. and they're usually one pagers uh, a lot of these strips and um <laughs> The one in Raw was kind of like, from what I remember, it was kind of like a, a goof on a private detective strip. Mm-hmm. The one that caught my imagination, I've never found it again. Mm-hmm. I, I have the Psychopath somewhere buried in boxes somewhere, but I haven't really found it in any like American translations or other tr- other collections. But it was basically this guy, uh, Cowboy Hank, is having an affair with a married woman, and. Um, <laughs> Uh, the guy, the the husband, the cuckolded husband finds out and uh, beats the crap out of him and he winds up head to toe in bandages in the hospital and there's only a little slit uh, for his tongue and um, when the when the, uh, the lover, the female, shows up at his hospital uh, bed um, he uh, sticks his tongue out the little slot you know, for the mouth, like the only thing he can move in his whole body is his tongue, and he asks her if she wants the sixty-nine, and that's how it ends. And, and you know, it's much funnier in the in the execution that I'm telling it now. But yeah, that was but the, the exact weird. strip. Yeah, yeah, that was the exact strip that did it, and it, it was just so hilarious and crazy. Uh, and you know, um, uh, you know. Um, Peter Van Herseel, or who goes by Herseel, um, he's a very talented painter in addition to a cartoonist. He, if you're on his Facebook page, he's always sharing these amazing oil portraits and even political gag cartoons that are basically oil painted. He's goofed on Trump. He's goofed on, um, you know, the heads of other uh, European states. You know, I mean, he, he's kind of political, kind of left-wing, I guess, but they're very funny, no matter what your political views. Um, they're just very amazingly painted, um, you know, uh, it was, you know, basically political cartoons. He's very, he's super talented, and he's always having exhibits in Europe. He's He has one, I think, in Rotterdam right now as we speak. Mm-hmm. Does his work appear in that, I, and I, I've lost the name, but it's uh, that uh, European or French... Uh, political humor magazine that unfortunately had that assassination coup a couple of years ago or whatever uh, uh, oh right right the Charlie Hibdo Char- thing yeah. does his work appear in that publication or no I don't think he ever took part in that okay. uh, he, he, uh, Cowboy Hank run, has been running for years in, in something called Humo okay. H-U-M-O which is I guess a humor magazine in, in the Flanders part of Belgium. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I I don't think he took part in Charlie Hebdo, to my knowledge, and he definitely wasn't on staff, otherwise he might not be alive today. Right. 
The only reason I asked is because <laughs> I mean, you said the political slant, so I thought, oh, maybe he does that as well. So, yeah. Um, now, you still publish your comics today, or are you on to other projects, which we may talk about here? <laughs> oh, uh, what am I doing now? Well, I mean, do you still publish your uh, those comics that we're talking about, newer issues, or are you completely done with those? I haven't talked. I haven't talked to you in a while. It's been a couple of years. Um, I yeah, you know. So what I've done in recent, more recent years, uh, comics wise, um, uh, I'm actually driving around the Bay Area right now uh, near Berkeley and Palo Alto and all that because. I just had a meeting today with Mel Smith, who has published a line. He revived the whole heavy metal biographical comics that Todd Warren did in the 80s. And, um, you know, since 2014, I've been the lead writer on those comics um, to heavy metal and punk bands. I mean, real ones. And we do the kind of unauthorized biographies. They've sold very well across North America and in Europe. Um, They're like just, you know biographies about these various bands we started with slayer and metallica mm-hmm. uh i've written most of his line um all the way to pantera and like system of a down and tool and we started punk stuff with no effects we're getting into k-pop we're gonna have a tw- two any one wow. book we're gonna have <laughs> it's really going in every direction oingo boingo is almost done which looks amazing mm-hmm. um uh, what's the other one? Sublime. So mm-hmm. it's starting to take off in different genres. You know, we're going to have rap as well. And um, mm-hmm. and that's been fun. So I, I had a kind of a, a big powwow with him uh, today. And so uh, I've been doing that since 2014, 2015. Yeah. Uh, I write them and he matches them with various artists mm-hmm. from really all over the world. He's gotten people from the Philippines, from Italy. Um, American, of course, um, you know, illustrating these books. So those are kind of my presence in the stores for most part. Okay. And then um, I've been self-publishing. Um, most recently, I've done stuff uh, like there's a line of comics called uh, Trolls, okay. which has nothing to do with the little the pupy b- dolls that DreamWorks animates. Yeah. It's uh, it, Trolls is lingo for air traffic controllers. Oh. Okay. And it's about a couple of slacker. Uh, air traffic controllers who work in the uh, Sky Harbor Tower in um, Phoenix. And one weekend when their supervisor is away, they decide to make a little extra money by throwing a double, sh- uh, doing, pulling a double shift mm. at work. Yeah. And while they're doing their double shift, they throw a little party, invite the girls from security. And before you know it, no one's watching the planes. <laughs> and all be- Bedlam, you know, breaks loose and I've done uh, two of these already I'm doing a third one now so that's like self-published work okay and I've done one-off self-published comics like there's one called The War on Dental which is basically dragons versus dentists Mm -hmm. it's quite an odyssey and uh, yeah no I I do a lot of self-published along the way I've um, commercially I've written uh, comics for the Simpsons people like Bart Simpson comics right uh, Boingo and uh, Gumby and Pokey comics. Mm, okay. And yep. uh, didn't you do? Uh, wasn't there something else? Oh, uh, yeah. You just said Gumby and Pokey. I was saying, didn't you do a? Uh, yeah, a Gumby and Pokey comic. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that yeah. one. So here's what happened. So Mel Smith, who does the metal books that I just mentioned, oh, yeah. um, before he did those, he had the license for. Um, for the Gumby and Pokey comics. Mm-hmm. And um, this is in, in cooperation with the 
our Cloakie estate. So our Cloakie was still alive, and actually Joe Cloakie, his son, was still alive. Mm. Um, he has since passed away, even though he was very young, mm -hmm. like 48. Yeah. And um, while J Joe was really operating the estate because Art was already in a wheelchair and, and in his 90s and kind of out of it. Mm. And so this is in like 20, 2009, 2010, uh, a little earlier actually, 2008. Um, uh, Mel invited me on board to um, contribute because uh, he was rolling with the Gumby comics that were getting, I believe, uh, you know, Eisner Awards, you know, I think with Bob Burden's participation mm -hmm. from Flaming Carrot, yeah. mm -hmm. the creator of Flaming Carrot. And um, he had seen that um, Art Cloakey did a, um, a foreword in my Unstoppable Rogues comic. And, and I had actually gone all the way to Marin County and, and, and visited Art Cloakey to get him to do that foreword oh. in the 90s. Wow. And anyway, so 2008, um, I wanted to do the, the so I, he wanted, here's what happened. I pitched Mel, he asked me to do some kind of Gumby or, or Pokey comic, and I pitched him a solo book of my favorite Gumby and Pokey character, which was Prickle. Oh. <laughs> the yellow one, you know, right, that right. no one is quite sure whether he's really a dinosaur or a dragon. Right. And in fact, my comic book about Prickle was about Prickle going on an identity search around the world to try to determine whether he is a dragon or a, a dinosaur. And so, you know, it winds up with him in England and Stonehenge and the, he, he finds the Loch Ness monster. He thinks he's related. It's quite an odyssey. <laughs> and Mel loved it, but he goes, you know what? We're gonna do a four issue miniseries. You're gonna write all four. Uh, with all of Gumby's supporting cast, but we can't come out of the gate uh, with Prickle. So he's like, let's start with Pokey. <laughs> so the series was called Gun Gumby's Gang Starring. Mm -hmm. And so the first one was Pokey. Number two was going to be Prickle. Number three was going to be uh, the Blockheads. And number four was going to be Goo. Right. <laughs> Goo. And so what happened was we successfully published uh, Gumby's Gang starring Pokey in 2010 mm -hmm. and I wrote it and uh, a guy named Rafael Navarro drew it mm -hmm. and we had an artist working on Prickle and then uh, Mel had a falling out with the Gumby estate yeah. <laughs> so he uh, walked away from renewing the license so essentially uh, I had written all four Mm -hmm. But only Pokey was published ah. So that was the tragedy And Prickle <laughs> was like Halfway drawn wow. And and uh, The Blockheads and Goo never got out of the gate So I'm, I'm a little Disappointed to this day because They were really fun and mm -hmm. It would have been great to at least get Prickle out Because that was the whole reason I wanted to do it You know, Right and you mentioned that story and I go I don't, I'm not familiar with that story because I did read The Pokey one and I'm like Oh, never got published. I get it. Okay. <laughs> so Yeah, so unfortunately we never we never got uh far enough, but that's the way it was supposed to go. And then um, you know, so he walked away from it. Um unfortunately, you know, Joe Cloakey died. I mean Art Cloakey died first and then right. Joe Cloakey died, you know, and then um it just uh, you know, after that he he really um, gave up on the cold Gumby Pokey thing, and he was looking for like a second act, like what can I do? Mm -hmm. And um, and so he decided to. Um, he had watched a documentary on Todd Warren, 
and you know who was murdered and um they think that he may have even been the first victim of the versace murders mm -hmm. the same guy um but anyway um he decided to um to resume um the rock and roll comics mm. and so when he did in uh, around 2014 he thought of me you know because we had worked very well on the pokey book mm -hmm. and the other you know the other gumby stuff that didn't materialize and so um that's how i got hired by him to to write that and i think we have you know there's at least um i've written about 15 to maybe 20 mm -hmm. of the rock and roll comics and we have around uh, at least nine or ten of them out right now that okay. i've you know now, now, on the, these books, are they strictly biographical, or are they just stories about these uh, bands? Yeah, what you, mean? you know, there's a little bit of fantasy element okay. in some of them, but they are essentially, um, they are autobiographical. They are unauthorized biographical comics. Yeah, that was my next question. Do you get permission to do this? <laughs> yeah, there's no permission, but at the same time, it's not illegal, because, yeah. you know, um, uh, if you go to any uh, Barnes and Noble, uh, there are shelves lined with books about the Beatles and right. U2 and the Beastie Boys. Anyone can write a book. Uh, you can't, just can't really uh, tread on any copyrighted material. So, um, you know, so they're unauthorized. Mm -hmm. And uh, the other side of it, though, is Mel, who lives in near Berkeley, um, has very good relations. He's really into the music world and knows a lot of musicians, and he's built a lot of goodwill with a lot of musicians. And actually, uh, almost every uh, band that we've done biographicals on, there are members of the group that um, not only uh, applaud us and support what we've done, but even try to sell it at their concerts, like oh. Exodus. Okay. And uh, there's one other band, I think, I can't remember right now, but they took it on the road, you know? Right. Um, well, you know, K Kerry King is photographed in the Slayer book because he he embraced the uh, ash can that we did. Uh, Tom Araya, the lead singer of Slayer, was not as pleased, but Kerry King loved it. And Gary Holt from uh, Exodus, who also became became a member of Slayer, uh, he he you know he loved the Exodus book and and they they sold that at their concerts. Mm -hmm. um, the only the only band before you ask the only band that has really actively hated what we did and tried to stop us was Guar. Wow. <laughs> Why? Yeah, yeah, and that was funny. Guar, <laughs> all the way from Virginia, they have like a, um, they have a, um, an attorney who sent a cease and desist to Mel, um, to stop putting out, you know, they caught wind because we had a, I think a mini comic, uh, preview, like an ash can. Mm -hmm. And they tried to stop the Guar comic, but legally they didn't have a leg to stand on. Right. So Mel laughed it off, and they eventually um, wound up putting out their own Guar comics as a result of us. They they rushed out some comics. And by the way, Slayer did the same thing. They put out comics after our biographical with Dark Horse. So we, we in a weird way, think that we, we kind of... Um, you know, kind of cornered Slayer and Guar into putting out their own comics. Probably <laughs> erroneously, they thought, you know, that um, that they were, you know, there was a lot of money to be made in comics, and that we were right. draining them of profits. Little did they know how how little money there is to be made in comics. So, right. but, but we we um, unfortunately put them down the rabbit hole of of creating their own comics, you know, to, at their own risk, <laughs> financial risk. That's funny. We will be back after this message. 
Hi, I'm George Takei. You know me as Helmsman Sulu on Star Trek. When I'm not busy going Warp Factor 8, I like to beam down to Lee's Comics in Mountain View and spend a lazy afternoon reading comics classics from Marvel to DC, from Dark Horse to Fantagraphics, and everything in between. So please, spend some time here at Lee's Comics and spend your hard-earned cash. <coughs> Fun Ideas Podcast is made possible by listeners like you and from Lee's Comics of California, selling you what your mother threw out since 1982, online at leescomics.com. And now back to the Fun Ideas Podcast. Um, yeah. You mentioned uh, you know some of the other uh, ones you're venturing off to. Is there ones that you'd like to do or that, uh, I mean, do you, do you get the, to choose who you do the bios on, or does it have to be like uh, with cooperation with anybody? Uh, well, so Mel, being the um, the publisher and editor, yeah. he um, first of all, a side note about Mel, he's a pretty brazen, amazing guy. Um, <laughs> did you ever meet him? I think Mark? I might have. If he's ever been at your table, I have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's okay. You probably met him. Yeah. Um, he's he's a pretty amazing guy he, uh, in terms of comics because. Um, He's a real straight shooter, you know. He he's um, excuse me here. He's um, he's a very honest guy, and um, and uh, that's why I like him. And he's also very original in the sense that he doesn't uh, try to pander um, to the market. He does what you know. He goes on strange tra- tang- tangents in terms of what he he does and so he had a he had a book called dead ahead which was actually drawn by a very famous um 70s filipino artist you know alex nino mm, okay yeah he, alex nino did a lot of art kind of like tony de zuniga he was part of that wave he did a lot of art for dc like house of mystery house of secrets that kind of thing mm-hmm. and uh together they did a thing called dead ahead which was essentially um the concept was essentially zombies at sea <laughs> and so what happened was um, concepts from Dead Ahead wound up in a, uh, because of uh, Mel was trying to option it for Hollywood, you know, to make a movie on it, and Mosaic was interested, and he was being kind of courted for a while, and a bunch of people in the industry caught wind of it, essentially producer types, writer types, and long story short concepts from dead ahead wound up in uh the last ship and fear of the walking dead hmm. okay because robert kirkman was very aware of his book um a woman named gloria fan who was a development agent at mosaic uh was courting him for this book and she wound up being a producer at the last ship and long story short he wound up successfully earlier this year in 2019 um suing Robert Kirkman and Fear of the Walking Dead uh, and they settled with him and he made a lot of money from a settlement hmm. so and essentially he won that lawsuit essentially wow. um, it was publicized in Hollywood Reporter and Deadline and all those sites and all the trade sites and with that money he's been you know keeping it going his line of comics you know wow. um, this was in March I believe his, his legal victory and so that's going to just fuel a lot more of these uh, metal and uh, just when anyone thought he was gonna calm down, he's got all these books ahead. Mm-hmm. So, um, so we do have a lot in the works. 
some of the titles that we have coming up. So we already, I've already written, me personally, I've written Slayer, Metallica, Pantera, um, uh, No Effects, which was our first uh, punk book. Um, what else? Uh, Rob Zombie, White Zombie, which is a flip book. Okay. I've written um, Exodus, Testament. Those all came out. Um and, and System of a Down and Tool. Okay. And so what we have ahead is um, Judas Priest was supposed to be our second book. For some reason, that had the most problems. Like, there have been many artists that have fallen out on it. Judas Priest is finally coming on board. We're going to have... Um, <laughs> We have ahead uh, Oingo Boingo, we have um, um, K-pop, uh, we're going to have our first K-pop thing, which I mentioned to anyone, we're going to have um, Sublime is the next book that's coming out, Judas Priest, let's see, uh, anyway, we're, we, we got a lot that I've written, uh, a, full, a full issue of Guar, and um, anyway, um, so yeah, the way it works is um, he he has, he has assigned most of the bands mm-hmm. that he thinks has, you know, his rule has been not to do any bands that were done by Todd Lauren back in the day. Oh, when the rock comics were being done. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. yeah, revolutionary comics. So yep. uh, that's his one rule. So he wants to do bands that have not been covered. The only time we broke that rule was Metallica. <laughs> However, there was a there was a little bit of a of a catch there um, with Metallica. Um, the way we he worked around that, uh, Metallica was only covered until like the Black Album because it was it came out like very early in their career. Right. And and so we or actually before the Black Album, I think, and Justice for All, the fourth oh. album. Yep. So we took we picked it up. Our Metallica biographical is from the Black Album on. Ah. So we basically, in my opinion, the years that no one really cares about as much creatively <laughs> when they became more corporate and like some kind of monster came out. So we are like Black Album from that point on. You know, that's what this one covers. But that's an unusual book. Most of the um, comics are are spotlighting bands that have never been done. And in the case of the the K-pop, uh, I, I've been going down a K-pop rabbit hole. So I suggest that we do two anyone. And <laughs> to our knowledge, it'll it'll be the first ever um, K-pop biographical comic, at least in America, yeah. in the in the English speaking world and in the Western world. And um, we're gonna have a, an artist named Queenie Chan illustrate that. She's a manga artist who's based in Sydney, Australia. A very talented mm. cartoonist. Now, how do you get your artists for these books? Uh, do you uh, put out a casting call, as it were, or are you? Do people come to you, or both? Um, in some cases, they've come to me, but but it's really Mel's doing. He matches oh. the artist. In the case of Queenie, um, I found her. She's a Facebook friend that I happened onto, and she, you know, she has a perfect style for it. So I brought her into the fold, and. Um, we have, a, I think, a Weezer comic next year as well, and I brought the artist into the fold. But mostly it's Mel's doing. Mel has a network of artists that he, he's already been working with. for. Uh, they've, they've illustrated uh, multiple books, you know, um, each one uh, that, I've dro- that I've written. Right. And so, um, so it's mostly his handling, and most of the stuff was assigned by him. It's his label, and he kind of has a, a feeling on what he thinks will be, like, the bands that will do well. Mm-hmm. And oh, we also have Misfits, Suicidal Tendencies coming out. Uh, those just popped into my head, so those are also <laughs> on the horizon. <laughs> Very good. Um, now, do you still do your uh, writing for other things like uh, the Palisadian Post, uh, and then back issue and comic book creator? 
Yeah, so, um, yeah, I for many years I wrote for Back Issue Magazine with Mike Yuri, and then I um, I stopped doing that and segued to write, uh, I became an associate editor on um, Comic Book Creator Magazine for John B. Cook. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, the you know, that magazine, Comic Book Creator, I think is on its 21st issue. Mm-hmm. Um, I was more active early on as a as an associate editor. Um, I He eventually, John Cook eventually just became the prime editor on it and, um, you know, essentially has just been running my articles. So, okay. um, <laughs> I you know, I took less and less of a role, not not by choice, but because he kind of moved in a direction where he, he had a clear idea of what he wanted to do and he didn't really... Um, consult with me in terms of planning the issues after I would say like issue seven or eight. So, which is fine. I mean, I'm not bitter or anything. I'm kind of busy as it is. So, right. uh, but he, you know, he, I wrote so much material that he's been running it to this, to this day. He still hasn't run all of my uh, material in terms of the articles I contributed. So we just got through a three part um, interview with Rich Buckler, which unfortunately he, you know, it was finished before he died, but unfortunately it just began running after he died. Wow. <laughs> but um, it, it, each part has run in a, a different issue, so that just wrapped up. And then I have a Pablo Marcos interview that he's going to run next, and then um, we actually have an interview with Mel Smith that, that we're going to run. So, um, so I'm still a contributor, but it's like stuff that I finished like years ago, as it turns <laughs> out, because he takes a while to put those out. You know, right, it takes right. like I don't know, four months to put an issue out and he tends to sidetrack himself from putting my articles out because he has other articles that come in between. So that's the way it's been going. It's been kind of a slow burn, but I do contribute to that. And, um, and yeah, I do a lot of, um, I do a lot of journalism to pay the bills. Um, I still contribute features and, uh, restaurant reviews to the Palisadian post and Pacific Palisades. Mm-hmm. Um, my prime journalism, um, work at the moment I'm on staff for the um, essentially the LA Business Journal oh. I'm a writer for those guys I cover commercial real estate which has been fun for the last two years um, very different than what I'm used to covering which is arts and entertainment right that's very good um, and then you did at one point I think you told me this before you like uh, writing copy for movie posters at some time <laughs> yeah that was that was a really funny um, before I got into journalism um, for one year, 1997 to be exact, <laughs> I was uh, I was like pounding out the uh, the taglines on movie posters. Uh, there used to be a company called Intralink, mm. and they were a movie industry ad agency based in uh, essentially West Hollywood, Beverly Hills area. And um, I wound up freelancing for them. And um, for a very short period of time, I was I was writing these taglines. And so a lot of the movies that came out in 97 have my poster taglines on it. For instance, um, The Mask of Zorro and uh, Eve's Bayou, mm-hmm. which uh, I remember the tagline was... Um, um, Love Can Lead You to a Dangerous Place. The Eve's Bayou was a movie with Sam Jackson, and it was like a voodoo love story by Cassie Lemons, who just did a movie called Harriet about Harriet Tubman. <laughs> and, um, you know, like literally like last month or something. And um, 
And anyway, so I did that tagline. I did the tagline for I Know What You Did Last Summer, mm -hmm. which was, if you want to bury the truth, make sure it stays buried. <laughs> and I actually competed against the Twister Girl. There was a woman who won an award, a key, I think it's called the Key uh, Advertising Award, for the tagline for Twister, which was... Um, uh, the dark side of nature. It was something very elemental like that. <laughs> she won an award, and I was actually pitted on a conference call against her for the I know what you did last summer assignment, and I wound my my tagline wound up winning. You know, being used on the posters, <laughs> and uh, so what was funny though, a funny follow up. So that came out I think in '97. Um, the I don't I know what you did last summer tagline, and then. This was funny. So many years later, 2004, in August of 2004, I remember because um, Collateral was on the cover of Entertainment Weekly, um, which was the movie, you know, the Michael Mann movie with Tom Cruise and Jamie Foxx. Right. Mm -hmm. So I pick up uh, this uh, in a newsstand. I'm looking, thumbing through an issue of Entertainment Weekly, and they used to have a feature on the last page called the Pop Quiz. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a pop culture quiz. And one of the questions was... From which movie did the poster have the tagline, if you want to bury the truth, make sure it stays buried? And then they were going to give the answer in the following issue. And I'm like, oh, you yeah, know, hey, I know that one. I, I actually wrote it. It was bizarre. It was funny <laughs> that they, they, out of all the posters in the world, they picked that. Right. And so uh, in August of 2004, Entertainment Weekly uh, unwittingly um, made, turned me into a trivia question. Yeah. <laughs> so that was cool. <laughs> So, uh, so that was random. Yeah. <laughs> Apart from uh, all the uh, writing and even artwork that you do, I mean, what do you do in your spare time? What, are you uh, still catching all the latest movies, or you tend to watch older stuff, um, or see concerts because of writing all those uh, punk and heavy metal uh, bios and things like that, or... Uh, um, I don't go to concerts as much as I used to. I'm, I'm kind of selective on those. I mean, I never was a huge concert goer. I would go to groups. I like a lot of rap. I like a lot of, back, you know, I used to see a lot of metal, rap, punk, whatever. But um, more, more movies. Um, I, you know, uh, well, actually, even less movies than, than I used to because um, they've really become so CG'd out. I've, <laughs> well, you know, and so, you know, generic uh, and mediocre I've kind of lost interest in like studio movies but mm -hmm. I do seek out uh, independent cinema that interests me mm -hmm. like the Jim Jarmusch's of the world and uh, you know the Alexander Payne's of the world like I like filmmakers that are still making movies you know that are uh, you know have human elements in it and uh, of course you know all the talent has really the talent has really floated to the streamers and TV and um, you know, or t what we call TV, but you know, peak TV streamers. Right. Um, right. I have three three channels mm -hmm. these days. Like I cut the cord. All I have is HBO, Netflix, and Amazon Prime, and okay. basically that's where all my <laughs> entertainment, I, especially HBO. I love the comedies on HBO and and some of the dramas and and you know, um, you know, some of my favorite shows these days are like um, I love Barry. I love Fleabag on Amazon Prime. Mm -hmm. I loved the first season of Divorce, the first four seasons of Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. 
uh, anything with Danny McBride, all those shows, Eastbound, Vice Principals, Righteous Gemstones, uh, Mindhunter on Netflix is great. Um, some of the absurdist shows like the Eric Andre show or like um, I Think You Should Leave Now with Tim Robinson, you know, like that kind of absurdism. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I, I uh, you know, truth be told, I think a lot of the best material, you know, Fargo is a great show yeah. on FX. Um True Detective first season, um, so I'm kind of a mix of all kinds of dramas and comedies that are really solid out there. Um, uh, that's kind of what I'm into more than movies. Unfortunately, movies are not what they used to be. I mean, to me, the heyday of cinema was really the '70s Hollywood, yeah. you know, yeah. and and um, and earlier. And um, these days, I think the best movies are either foreign or or independent. You know, if you can find independent, I mean it's harder and harder to find independent movies. So, you know, that's kind of what speaks to me the most, you know? Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, I am, I am technically a big cinephile, but not in practice in terms of Hollywood stuff these days. You know, it's very, I, I see most of my Hollywood studio stuff at the $1 theater in my town. So (laughs) that if it's really lame, I can walk out of it and, 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 you know, maybe complain that I've lost 75% cents because I've stayed for three quarters of the movie or or 50 cents you know walking out midway through the movie so um you know because i mean really um i think they're so bad that um they're just not worth top dollar and i'm not that enthusiastic about running out to see them do do they have any good uh independent film festivals down in la i haven't been down there in years for that so i don't know um film festivals i'm not sure i don't really go to film festivals to see them um I would say, you know, to talk about the subject, you know, like my, my, um, you know, in terms of cinema this year, mm-hmm. uh, my two favorite movies so far, I mean, there's only been really two movies that I've enjoyed, mm. um, that I've seen in the theater. Not that I've seen every single, you know, acclaimed movie, but the ones that spoke to me, I, I really liked Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I thought yeah, that was the that best was movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That I saw all year. Um, uh, very entertaining. And, um, a distant second, I would say is Parasite. Uh, the Korean movie, uh, class warfare comedy or dark comedy or satire, whatever you want to call it, um, which I think would have been better had I not seen Shoplifters last year, the Japanese <laughs> Oscar contender, because um, um, Shoplifters was about a family of um, grifters, and and Parasite is about a family of grifters, but you know the storyline's different. Um, they infiltrate this like rich family. Um, but you know both are great movies but you know there was a little bit of deja vu when I saw Parasite because that huge element would seem to be borrowed from the Koraida film Shoplifter so hmm. um, but you know that's the kind of stuff that I, I really seek out um, um, in terms of cinema you know um, right. and and uh, the Marvel DC stuff um, they're really iffy uh, here and there they're good ones but um Especially the Disney Marvel ones, I'm not really into. I don't like um, the whole uh, Kevin Feige line of uh, Marvel movies. My, my favorite Marvel movies have been made by other studios. Hmm. Um, you yeah. know, um, I like the Sam, the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man. I like oh, yeah. the better X-Men movies, like First Class and uh, Days of Future Past. Mm-hmm. And I like the, Nor- the Ed Norton Hulk back then. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, I don't like a lot of the Disney Marvel movies, unfortunately. And and with DC movies, you know, it's kind of the same. It's like some are okay and some are pretty bad. So, mm-hmm. 
you know, that's kind of how I feel about superhero movies, I guess. Now, now do you follow any certain directors? I mean, you mentioned Tarantino, but uh, are there others you, like, are must-see directors that you follow, or is it usually just the film? Yeah, um, like, Tarantino is not even my one of my favorite filmmakers, but, you know, I was I, I really loved um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and I loved Inglorious Bastards. Mm-hmm. Uh, those two are my fav- personal favorites. Mm-hmm. Um, the ones I really, you know, try to go to the theater for, Jim Jarmusch, even though um, I loved Patterson, Patterson mm-hmm. from 2016, but um, oddly enough, the one he released this year, The Dead Don't Die, the zombie movie, um, is one of my least favorites of his, um, <laughs> as it turned out. But even though it had a great cast, but did you see it by any chance? I have not. I wanted to, but then, you know, I, I was wary, and I don't see everything. I'm like you. It's like I try to see as much as I can. You know, I'm just yeah. wary when it's zombie stuff because it's like. Haven't they done it's enough zombie stuff? You know, it's exactly. Like, it's been done to death, and no. like he did, you know, he did his twist on on vampire lore a few years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, with that movie uh, in 2014, I think uh, only lovers left alive, mm-hmm. which I think was more successful. I mean, I, I guess I don't like when he goes into genre stuff. You know, um, I mean, I, that was an okay movie. It wasn't my favorite, but it was better than the zombie movie. Um, mm-hmm. But I like when he does more his own kind of you know mystery train is probably my all-time favorite mm-hmm. Jim Jarmusch movie and I love his earlier movies and uh, you know so uh, he's but you know he's a must-see because he's doing he's always doing something interesting you know whether or not they're all successful is another thing but he he's daring you know and I right. like filmmakers like him Alexander Payne is another one you know Sideways mm-hmm. The Descendants yeah. um, Nebraska you know and he you know he did a, a movie that was kind of a lesser movie which was The Downsizing I didn't like that much yeah um, I didn't like that one as much either that's <laughs> kind of weird but yeah well, you know he He's a guy that he still has a lot of goodwill with me because he's trying different things. You know, I mean, yeah. they're they're always you know they're you know Woody Allen has had a lot of movies that I've loved over the years. You know, and he's also had a lot of failures. But you know, when when he's on, he's really on. You know, um, especially in the seventies. Seventies Woody Allen for me, as far as comedies, are kind of unbeatable. Right. Um, yeah. And uh, more recently, I would say um, Blue Jasmine stood out for me. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a drama mask. It's it's not even a you know it's a it's a dark comedy masquerading as a drama. Uh, Blue Jasmine was really really amazing in that way that it was actually very funny, but it was so straight faced that you kind of look at it as a drama. Um, and uh, you know, Midnight in Paris was not bad, but um, yeah, you know, in terms of individual filmmakers, you know, I used to like Wes Anderson a lot more than I do now. I think he's become very repetitive, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. <laughs> you know, his earlier stuff is great. I thought Rushmore, Life Aquatic, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and um, I don't know. Uh, anyway, it's kind of I can't think off the top of my head who else, but. I like I like filmmakers like that who are trying to say you know say or do th- different things and not just going for cookie cutter generic type movies you know. Um, do you like uh, Coen Brothers? Uh, oh yeah, of course, okay. Coen Brothers. Okay. Yeah, Coen Brothers, of course. Yeah. I mean, you know, Big Lebowski, one of my favorites. Hot Sucker Proxy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, um, let's see, more recently, I'm trying to think, Hail Caesar was a big misfire for me, but. Yeah. Again, you know, they're always going to be kind of on and off. You know, there'll always be movies where they're maybe not as good, but it doesn't take a, away from their best work. You know, right. I did like their most recent one they did for Netflix, the Buster Scruggs. A little uneven, but I mean, some of the stories are really good. They're like classic Coen Brothers, so 
It's worth a yeah. watch if you take a sh shot at it. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, you know, the thing about the Coen brothers, though, like like the other guys we mentioned, you know, is they take risks and they're, yeah. you know, inside Lloyd, um, Lloyd, what was it? Lloyd inside Lloyd David? Lloyd Llewellyn, that one? Is that what? Yeah, it, it, yeah. no, it's not Lloyd Llewellyn. Oh. It's Lloyd, uh, God, what is it? Is it <laughs> Lloyd Llewellyn? Is that what it is? I thought it was no. Llewellyn, but yeah, I could be wrong. Anyway, but, yeah, I, I know what you're talking. I know the film you're talking about. Cloud? Yeah, he's a musician. Yeah, anyway, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, the one with Os uh, Oscar Isaac. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, that movie was great, you know, and it had Adam Driver in it. Adam Driver was sensational in um, in Jarmusch's um, Patterson movie. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I thought terrific movie um and, and he's a oh, by the way he's a great uh actor and i'm looking yeah. forward to seeing marriage story he was he was like the best one of the best elements in um black Klansman, which i thought kind of uh the last half hour really lost me you know uh became too jokey and it was like let's prank david duke and let's prank you know like the fbi or the police would not do that like you know, reveal that they were staking him out and, yeah. and pulling a charade on him. But it, it got, it descended into silliness and comeuppance at the end, you know, that wasn't very realistic. But until then, you know, uh, Adam Driver was, was a great element of uh, Black Klansman, mm -hmm. along with uh, Denzel's son, you know, um, good actors. Um, but yeah, no, you know, um, I don't know. Um, I, I like, um, yeah, yeah, anyway, I just try to seek out, like, interesting movies that way. Um, it's been a long time for you know it's been bad for comedy cinema has been really bad for comedy in recent years yes <laughs> um, the last com you know because comedy has kind of fallen out of fashion and uh, the last great comedy that I, that I can think of that I saw in the movies uh, that I loved was um, Role Models that Paul Rudd movie hmm I don't think I've seen that one wow uh -huh. yeah Paul Rudd stars in it and he co-wrote it and um, David uh, David Wayne directed it and um the guy who's behind the uh, Wet Hot American Summer stuff and okay. uh, the National Lampoon movie on Netflix and um, anyway um, yeah so uh, uh, anyway it's hard to find good comedies these days and yeah. in the movies there used to be a time where you could see a lot of them but um, I think all the best comedies are coming out of like HBO or streamers you know yeah it seems like the the most recent and I won't name any names. So the, the most recent uh, theatrical comedies I've seen, you know, they just go for the total raunch. And I'm not any prude by any means, you know. If, but if if raunch is just there to be there, it just kind of bores me. I mean, you have to do it creatively if you're going to do something really raunchy and gross or something like that in a comedy. But uh, I don't know if you found this a similar thing with that. Yeah. yeah, you know, Todd Phillips, the guy who did the Joker movie, he did all those hangover movies. And I think that kind of, uh, that and the Seth Rogen stuff kind of tilted things in that direction. And yeah. I'm, I'm not, you know, I, I don't have any hard rules about it, but it has to be really funny. And I yeah. think some of those movies were not that funny. Yeah. Um, I did like, oddly enough, Todd Phillips did a movie called School for Scoundrels, which was like a remake. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that, that was hilarious. Yeah. And then, um, the Seth Rogen bunch, the Apatow bunch. I don't really like their movies in general. I yeah. don't think they're they're very, you know. Once in a while, there's like Pineapple Express, or uh, which I liked enough, or um, This Is the End was okay. But yeah. like most of those movies, uh, kind of leave me cold. And um, it's I don't know. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I think there was kind of a up the upping the ante of like gross out and stuff like yeah. that oh. wouldn't, wouldn't bother me as much if it were actually funny you yeah know, that's, that's my point you know it's like right 
You know, if, yeah. you, if you're going to do gross out, make it funny. If it's just there just to gross out or, you know, worse, it's just there and it doesn't have any purpose at all, you know, and it's like, okay, whatever. It makes me appreciate John Landis, you know, um, John Landis being probably one of my favorite all-time directors of comedy, you know, with, with just Animal House and Blues Brothers alone, you right, know, um, right. mm-hmm. that he got away, you know, he did these great movies that, you know, when you look back on it, they're, they're not as uh, out there as the, the stuff that, that has come out since, but yet are very edgy and they're very funny. Right. And politically incorrect, but funny. And, um, you know, uh, the fact that he, he was so skillful and could make a movie like that, that by today's standards would be tame in terms of, like you know the censors uh censoring anything like language or nudity or anything but you know so clever you know and really that's what it comes down to it's got to be clever you know and you can get away with a lot you know mindhunter is a great series because have you seen mindhunter on netflix Mm, no i haven't okay (laughs) well you know mindhunter and even even the first season of true detective uh you know given the topics that they're about um especially mindhunter um you know they there's not a lot of vulgarity or grisly. Uh, there's really very little in terms of like anything gross out, or there's really nothing in Mindhunter. You know, it's all psychological. It's all in the writing, and I admire that more than something that is just explicit. You know, and right. Right. you know, I think the same with uh, comics. You know, like when you're doing humor comics or whatever. I mean, you know, I've in my comics I've done a little bit of shock value, but. <laughs> Definitely not overboard, you know. Just maybe enough, just to spike it, spike the punch a little bit. But yeah. I don't believe in overdoing it. And I don't believe in um, in going that route. I don't think it makes it any funnier, you know. Unless there's a real point to it, and right. you know, the best filmmakers I think can get away with with uh, expressing something without having to go that route, you know. Um, the yeah. skillful ones. Right, and so I agree with you totally on that. When it comes, and it's nothing to do with uh, being a prude, because you know, yeah. um, you know, I, it's nothing to do with that. It, you know, I've seen you know porn in my day. I'm not a prude, but <laughs> you know, it's more just like you know, you you know, it's boring if you don't do it well. You know, right. it's boring if you just show us everything. And you know, Hitchcock and Orson Welles, you know, they made very suspenseful movies without showing anything graphic. And you know, there's something masterful about that. You know, right. so it's definitely something to uh strive for i think in art right you know the classic is of course psycho everybody thinks i could have sworn i saw the knife go in her body nope right yeah <laughs> it's just yeah it's the most, it's one of the most clever sequences i mean the way it's edited and, and directed and and it's like you know they kind of knew that they knew that they didn't have to show anything to, to scare people you know and they and those days i guess they had to run around the censors i mean you know that said i mean i you know uh I, you know, Sam Peckinpah is one of my all-time favorite filmmakers. <laughs> yeah. And now he, you know, of course, took the he basically helped introduce naturalistic, if you want to call it that, or whatever, realistic, gory violence to movies. Yeah, um, right. However, you know, he's kind of a he's kind of a special case in my in my mind. I thought I thought Sam Peckinpah was actually anti-violence i mean mm-hmm. if you look at every one of his movies you know like the wild bunch and pat garrett and billy the kid and bring me the head of alfredo garcia all of which i love are among my favorite movies um mm-hmm. the protagonist or the antagonist whatever the the, the anti-hero they, they always die at the end of the movie you know mm-hmm. for all of the violence that they 
they're responsible for in the movie, they never meet a happy ending. They're, you know, every one of those characters winds up, you know, dead. And I think that was the point of his movies. You know, they were to show the folly of, of man and the folly of violence. And Peckinpah was a real master. And unless you're a master, I don't think you should go there with, with explicit violence. You know, it's very hard to do, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and do it legitimately, you know. Um, so, I mean, that's one example where I would say kind of violates my rule of, of violence in movies, you know. Um, but, you know, that's a very rare kind of thing, you know. Yeah, but it sounds similar to having excessive, uh, um, uh, you know, gratuitous uh, sex or whatever in a comedy. You know, if it's gratuitous violence in a film like uh, Peckinpah's, you know, if there's a purpose and a meaning and a reason, it seems to be all right. Yeah, so. Right. If, if they're going for some kind of gag, you know, that'll pay off. You know, right. um, if it's if you know if it's just for titillation or you know, or um, because we can, you know, I think that's the wrong reasons. Like right. some some people criticize some shows on HBO because like they're, you know, I don't know, maybe a Game of Thrones type thing. Or my friend actually criticized Barry because. He thought it went way too violent, you know, just because they can on HBO. And, right. you know, he may have a point. You know, um, I actually love Barry. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about the season finale on season two. And, uh, you know, I would have to agree it was not my favorite episode of Barry. And, you, you know, if I could choose, I would rather not see people get shot in the head with pools of blood. But, you know, uh, sometimes there's a point to it. And, you know, it's a little unsettling, but, you know, it adds up to something larger. So, I don't know. It's a case-by-case thing, I guess. But, in general, yeah, I'm not really... I'm not bloodthirsty, and I'm not looking for gratuitous sex in my entertainment. So, right. <laughs> um, you know, um, I think, you know, if it's done smartly, anything could be kind of legitimate. But uh, not a lot of people can do it smartly. That's the thing. Um, you know... Um, or the copycats, you know, who copy the, the, you know, like in the 80s, you know, we had um, some legitimately great teen comedies, you know, like the Fast Times at Ridgemont Highs, and, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, and before you know it, you got Porky's 3 and Joysticks, you know, <laughs> like, you know, like eventually, you know, uh, the copycats don't do a great job of, uh, of getting that Animal House or, or Fast Times vibe, and right. they just, uh, they take the the most superficial aspects of those movies and, and exploit it, you know? Yeah. So, anyway. But, well, they totally uh, missed the point, you know, yeah. You can say that of any, any genre, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, um, we're coming to that time where I just kind of okay. say, hey, it's uh, been great talking to you, but uh, how do Thank people you. get a hold of you? Uh, and uh, uh, what projects are you working on? And uh, you can plug a book, you can plug a website, plug anything. Go for it. Okay, well, I'm just going to plug. I'm, my website is down at the moment. I'm going to create a new website, so unfortunately, I can't plug that. But um, I do have a cart. My my imprint is Cartoon Flophouse Comics, mm-hmm. and I do have a page devoted to Cartoon Flophouse Humor Comics um, on Facebook. Its own page, in addition to my personal Facebook page. So, if you're on Facebook and you do a a search for Cartoon Flophouse Comics. Um, you you can find my page there and that's about the best the closest thing to a website i have at the moment okay. um until i get my website going again and then as far as new projects i am currently working on a third trolls book right now and i have a, a graphic novel i'm also uh 
noodling on called um, Humpty Dumpty and Pinocchio in Vegas, <laughs> which uh, is going to take much longer, but that's a fun project that I can't wait to um, unveil. And um, and um, and I'm going to continue writing those metal, punk, rap, K-pop, uh, <laughs> new wave, uh, you know, unauthorized uh, biographical comics for uh, Mel Smith's company. So uh, that's kind of what, what's going on. And uh, I'll leave, I'll end this uh, great conversation, thank you, mm-hmm. um, by saying that I will be at um, Comic-Con in San Diego in uh, the summer of 2020, I just got approved, so find me at my booth. It's N13 okay. in Small Press. All right. N13 at Small Press, summer of 2020, so okay. see you there. Any other uh, personal appearances during 2020 or just uh, San Diego at this time? Um, I will be at the um, Latino Comics Fest in Modesto in March and the San Diego Comic Fest All right. in San Diego in March. Both in March. All right. And um, can Google for the dates. I don't have them handy, but okay, that's, that's March fine. 2020. Yep. All right. Sounds very good. And we'll keep a watch for that and any projects you're working on. And it Thank was you, a Mark. pleasure talking with you today, Michael. And uh, uh, Thank you. we'll talk soon. Thank you, Thank you very much. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Michael Auschenker, for being my special guest. Episode number 60 will be coming soon. If you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. Become a patron of Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions. If everyone listening just contributed a dollar a month, that would be a tremendous help in continuing the production of my books and this podcast. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. The opening and closing music for the Fun Ideas podcast is provided courtesy of Andrew the Slow Poisoner Goldfarb and is used with permission. This has been the Fun Ideas podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2020, Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you and good night. of your lead.